I'm John Heilman. And I'm Will Leach. And we are the hosts of Bloomberg Politics' podcast on the intersection of politics and culture. The podcast is called Culture Caucus, and we are here again to do, Will, what episode is this this podcast? I think it's like 16, right? Uh, 17. I think it's a bake, um, a little bit more than a baker's dozen, but a little bit less than, uh, let's just say each of them are their own apostle plus a few extra apostles. Yeah, I think it's kind of, you know, it's kind of great that we do this podcast together. We don't even really know what episode we're on, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like it's like episodes fly when you're having fun. We uh, they're like Dylan. Are, they're uh, like we're... they're like Dylan songs. It's all just an ongoing story. Right. It's a it's a river. It's a river of babble, and we like to indulge it. At, you know, well, the thing is, it, I feel as though you know we launched this podcast at the beginning of the year. Oh, by the way, where can you find this podcast? Just for anybody who doesn't know, the easiest way to find it, of course, is in your ears this exact second. But also on BloombergPolitics.com, and please out uh, SoundCloud, and of course iTunes. The best way to find this is to subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a nice review helps people find the podcast and it gets you the podcast before anybody else does zing zing so we've been doing this for a while now and basically every single episode that we've done has been sort of about uh, the, the the premise of the podcast right politics is a, a, a sport in its in its way and it's kind of a it's great spectator sport it's also a great sport for the participants and it's one of the great competitions in american life but the way that people experience politics is not just through the prism of Washington, D.C. or the campaign trail. They also experience it through comedy and, 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 and other forms of entertainment. There's intersections with technology, with business, with finance, with science. Um, and we've tried to explore some of those over the course of the life of this podcast so far. But what we really haven't done so far is sort of a straight-up political podcast where we've just talked about you know, the campaign as it exists uh, as it's unfolded, like strictly through a political lens. And it's hard for us to do that because of the nature of our interests. But we're going to try to do that this week only because it, this is the moment in this week, on this, the 19th day of October of 2016, where even those who uh, have been most willing to keep open the possibility that Donald Trump could win the presidential race have now sort of reached the conclusion as of today that the race is basically over. And Trump is still out there uh, throwing bombs and scorching the earth in various ways and trying to figure out some way to put himself back into competition. But really, if you look at the polling nationally and in the battleground states, uh, it was starting to look pretty clear that Hillary Clinton's going to be the next president of the United States. And as I say, even those people who are most open to the idea that Trump might stage a comeback are now acknowledging that it's almost certain that Hillary Clinton's going to win. We do have the third debate is happening tonight as we're taping this podcast. I am here in Las Vegas for that debate. You are where? I'm in the, the Delta Sky Club at the LaGuardia Airport, where there are many handsome individuals uh, trying not to be too annoyed by me ch chatting. Right. Okay. So, you know, you're not here in Vegas, but I am here in Vegas. And a lot of people would say, hey, you know, this debate is the last moment where Trump, um, you know, is going to have a, an audience of tens of millions of people. Um, it's the last big moment that we know will come. There could be still more surprises. We've already had many, many October surprises. And given that there are still 14 days left in the month, God knows what will happen. But we're, we've reached that point where things seem to be on a certain kind of glide path towards a certain conclusion. So we're going to talk about politics today. And the other reason we're doing this um, and, and is that we have the great good fortune to have with us today Mr. David Axelrod as our guest. Um, David, of course, is interested also in culture. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, sports with him. He's currently obsessed with his hometown Cubs and their state uh, in the NLCS. So we'll talk about that a little bit with David, but mostly we're just going to talk politics with him because, of course, as everybody knows, David was sort of the keeper of the message uh, and the sort of chief strategist for Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 and again in 2012. Now he's uh, 
of an academic of sorts running the <laughs> Institute of Politics at Ch University of Chicago, also a commentator on CNN, also an author of a great uh, memoir called Believer. Um, anyway, David, along someone I've known for a long time, and we'll be talking to him shortly. But Will, I want to start just by asking you this. You are someone who has been covering politics and in a variety of different ways just really for this year. Um, you did not come to this enterprise and this campaign with a depth of great campaign experience. And one of the reasons we brought you on to Bloomberg Politics was because of that, to bring a fresh eye to things. So I just want to start by asking you to kind of reflect on what it's been like to be uh, a, a guy who's a, mainly been a sports journalist and a movie critic and a culture writer um, who's been brought into the melee of a presidential campaign. What's it been like covering this campaign from your point of view, the way you see it, and where you sit? You know, I'll confess, uh, John, when I got the opportunity to, I, this is something I've always wanted to do, is to be able to cover uh, an election uh, really from, it, from any angle. I've always been kind of obsessed with politics. It's the one part of my career I never really got the opportunity to do, so I jumped at the chance to do it this year. And part of the reason for that is I, because I was a newbie at this and didn't have a lot of experience, foolishly, I recognize now, Found, thought, you know what, this will be enriching. This will be ennobling after years of covering <laughs> something so so frivolous as sports or so light and, fr and frothy as entertainment. At last, I will be dealing with issues that affect Americans, affect their real lives. You know, I can't get my parents to read any of my movie stuff, and I can't get my, my wife to read any of my sports stuff. So, you know what, there'll be political stuff that crosses over to everyone that would want to read it. It'll be a very exciting time, and it will be good. I will feel good about myself at the end of the day I've written about the issues that affect Americans. I have been covering sports for nearly 20 years and entertainment for nearly 10. And this ennobling practice of covering the election this year, not once did I ever, I've been in so many locker rooms, John, I have seen so many athlete genitals. Not once has any athlete ever said in a public stage or even privately, Compa say compared their genital size to an uh, opposing athlete or a fellow athlete there and literally in my second political debate that happened so it's been it's been a different year i you know i think i imagined this when i started doing it you know i think a lot of people we thought this was going to be hillary clinton and jeb bush and it was going to be you know these two political families and and uh the these people that were mostly the same uh and i mean, obviously they had like like differences but were traditional politicians that we i thought these would be a debate about the issues and this and maybe it would be Marco Rubio or maybe it would be Ted Cruz, but I don't think anyone quite, ex uh, if I may borrow a phrase, uh, expected uh, this circus. <laughs> and, and so to, to cover it for this way, on one hand, it's been obviously uh, very exciting and, and every day is a new story. But I do find myself understanding you know, think about six, nine months ago. This was an incredibly exciting thing. Think about that first debate. Think, you know, we, we, I did a piece for, for, with all due respect, about how amazing the ratings were for the early primary debates and how much excitement there was among the American public. I think that that excitement has abated and has actually kind of gone into this place of, okay, please, please, please let this be over. I feel like that's the way most people are reacting to it because I think you just can't not feel that way after every day a new story, every day. Like the stuff that's, that's you know, great for junkies like us where we're like oh a new story a new story there's three stories a day if you miss 24 hours 50 things have happened that's exciting but man ultimately it becomes so exhausting that I think uh, uh, I understand why people are are exhausted and, and, and ready for the race to be over right it's sort of depressing to hear you say that I mean you know one of the things I think is interesting I mean I, first it's depressing to hear you say that second of all I, I don't think you're wrong about the way that a lot of people now 
are feeling about this uh, election. Now, I would say that's true even of a lot of the journalists covering it, um, that the whole thing has become, um, I mean, it's obviously been a spectacle. And there have been a variety of ways in which the norms of, of, of political discourse, the norms of political campaigning have been uh, not just obviated but violated in kind of violent ways, really almost exclusively by Donald Trump. Um, just, you know, again, I say that not, I mean, to the extent that our, that our democracy works, it, it works to some extent, uh, to a large extent, by the notion that all of the participants in it will abide by certain kind of basic rules of the road. Um, it's sort of the same way that, like, you know, driving on the freeway works. You know, if we have anarchy uh, and no one pays attention to the rules of the road, you know, Los Angeles would be just a smoldering heap of rubble, um, for instance, like most big cities. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Trump has kind of basically said, I don't really care about stoplights. I don't care about whether green means go or yellow means slow. Uh, I don't really care about, like, whether you can make a left-hand turn on a red light. I'm just going to do whatever I'm going to do. It's been a crazy thing to watch. And what I'm interested in, you know, the part of the power of Trump and part of the reason he finds himself, found himself the Republican nominee was because he brought the value system, um, some of the skills, some of the techniques of show business to the campaign in a full, in a full kind of full, full bore way. I mean, we've seen that before, right? Politics has, right. has been has been entertainment, um, has been part, embedded in popular culture for a long time. But we've never really seen someone who's quite as a, a kind of a glaringly, proudly a showman as Trump ever run for office, let alone manage to actually obtain the nomination of one of the two major parties. And for a long time, it worked for Trump, right? I mean. There are a million layers of political analysis as to how it is that Donald Trump became the Republican nominee, but one way in which it, he became the Republican nominee was that he just out-blustered and out-charismaed and out-razzled-dazzled everybody else in the field. So I'm interested that all of that is still there, right? The, the bluster, the charisma, the razzle-dazzle, and again, the willingness to do and say things that nobody else is willing to do and say. But for a long time, that worked for him, and then it stopped working for him. So, again, I could bring a variety of layers of political analysis to that. But I'm curious, from your point of view, as you look at that, what explains that? Like, why it worked so well for so long and allowed him to achieve something kind of extraordinary? A guy really without a campaign, without contributors, without a political network, without any real history in politics, who wasn't really even a member of the Republican Party just a couple years ago, staging a hostile takeover of one of America's two great political parties – on the strength of a lot of those kind of showbiz values and showbiz techniques, he achieved all of that, and now he's really headed towards, if the trend lines and trajectories hold, he's headed not just for a defeat in this general election, but a, but a humiliating, crushing, punishing defeat at the hands of Hillary Clinton, who's an incredibly unpopular candidate unto herself. So what explains that, Will? How, how did it go from good to bad in almost like a heartbeat. Well, you know, I think there's there's two ways to look at it. One, I remember being in Iowa, and you know, I was there for for a couple of weeks, and you know, and I everyone I talked to talked to so much about how the thing that makes Iowa great is that it's all retail, and you have to go in and talk to people, and you have to go in and see people, and and that's the best part about it. you know, you can I I saw Jeb Bush talk to like 25 people, and Marco Rubio talked to like 45 people, like you see people in an environment that you would never see them in any other context, and it made Iowa really very exciting 
Trump just ignored all of that and said, I'm just going to kind of run from my kitchen. I'm just going to be in my pajamas and I'm going to call into a show and I'm going to run from my, ki- uh, my kitchen for a long time. I think it, it – so on one hand, I think, I think Trump exploited a flaw in current media. And I think a lot of times, times – People say that, like, well, this is the he's 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 messing with the media. The media has always been like this. I think specifically right now, media is in a place where um, there's more desperation. Uh, the the industry's in a point of weakness to where, you know, 20, 20 years ago, you know, the the idea of we wouldn't have like Trump would do something crazy and there'd be no instant. Need, business base need for people to be like, oh, we have to write about this immediately and make it as, as loud of a thing as possible. But now that's part of the business. And so I think Trump exploited that very well. And all of a sudden in making a lot of the retail stuff that you usually have to do in political campaigns uh, irrelevant. But also remember, too, you know, we were talking uh, heading into the Republican primary about how the deep bench of Republicans and, the, and how you know how they had so many young candidates and the democrats they just kind of had hillary for so long that they kind of lost some of those young voices they didn't have a lot coming up in the way the republicans had a lot of different people coming up and i think on what trump did a little bit and of course who could have predicted predicted trump that you know they were all playing a different they were playing a game with rules and he wasn't so he's a difficult thing to kind of deal with but also i think it showed a lot of flaws in those candidates that we had not necessarily seen before you know it's it's hard to it's hard to look at anyone in that race with the possible exception of ted cruz and be like oh man they did everything right they just kind of ran into the trump thing and and i think so i think that's why it succeeded i think that there were a lot of people there where it didn't work that they, we thought they were better candidates than they were. But, you know, not to get all poli-sci on it, but I think what's really happened, the reason it stopped working is, A, there's a general exhaustion, but B, you know, these are the fundamentals of the race. You know, we talked about, even going in, about how the advantages electoral college-wise that a generic Democrat would have over a generic Republican. And I think Trump has, you know, he's in a position now where one thing we don't usually see uh, in, a, in a campaign is... A, People lose, you know, people lose and people uh, deal with that loss and they understand they're going to lose. It's rare you see this ongoing death spiral. You know, I think to have to have everything with Trump cascade was like a little stretch that ended, I think, on Wednesday, October 12th, where where there was the tape. There was the bad debate. Then there was the tape and there was the second bad debate and uh, Machado and then the second bad debate, the tape and all of this stuff keeps coming, coming, coming. After that point, I think the thing that people had kept saying over and over and over once people get down to have to make a decision, they're just not going to want to choose this guy. I think all of that came to a head now. And, and the problem is, is the more he goes out there now and goes crazy and, and it's clearly like dealing with things that are not even really about electoral politics now, the, the worse it gets for him and, and the more it makes it easier for Republicans to separate themselves from him now as opposed to, say, 11 months ago when it actually might have been a lick of difference for them. Right. I think there's, a, there's also, it seems to me, there's a... There's another thing, and I think it's worth, you know, just kind of unpacking it just briefly. You know, I, one of the things I've said for a while now is that, you know, part of Trump's problems, like if you think about all the things, most of the things that he did, all, not all, maybe, but most, most of the, of the provocations, the most egregious provocations that he uncorked when he was running for the Republican nomination. So he, he made a generic comment about Mexicans, which was horrific, when he referred to you know racists and mur- uh, uh, rapists and murderers, right? But that wasn't directed at any specific person. The specific people that he attacked in the course of the Republican nomination fight: John McCain, Carly Fiorina, Megyn Kelly, 
Um, obviously, all of his rivals, um, you know, Little Marco, uh, Lion Ted, you know, attacking Ted Cruz's, even Ted Cruz's wife, um, Ted Cruz's father as having been uh, somehow involved in the Kennedy assassination. All of the kind of most outlandish things he said were directed at public figures, right? And I think, as a general matter, the public has a very high degree of tolerance for politicians attacking other politicians and attacking members of the media and making those kinds of those kinds of attacks. Where I think you're really in uncharted territory of a different kind is when you have a politician who starts attacking private citizens in a direct way. So, you know, as soon as Trump became the Republican nominee, his attacks on Judge Curiel, um, his racist attacks on Judge Curiel, then his attacks on the Khan family after the conventions, then his attacks on Alicia Machado, the former beauty queen, um, when he fat shamed her repeatedly after the first debate, were all, I think, really devastating uh, and really fed into the argument that the Clinton campaign has wanted to make about his temperament and about him being kind of unsuited to the presidency, because that's really something we never see presidents do. You know, presidents, like, pick, pick, picking on private citizens in that kind of ins, in the insulting, aggressive, kind of hostile way that he did. And then you get to the tape, right, which I think is, uh, you know, obviously I think the most, the, the thing that was the nail in the coffin for Trump. I mean, Trump was losing this election. He has been behind Hillary Clinton from the day the general election started all the way till today. But the real moment, the tipping point, the moment, you know, the, the watershed moment where it became absolutely unrecoverable, obviously, was when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And I know we talked about this on the podcast last week a little bit with Mo Ryan, but I, 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 you just got to go back to it again and just, you look at the fallout from it in the polling now, um, the number of, of voters, many, 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 many women, some men, but particularly well-educated women who are just completely now unavailable to Trump, uh, no matter what happens, no matter what he says. And I think there's something kind of poetic almost about the fact that Donald Trump, who rose to prominence in reality television, um, you know, to national prominence with The Apprentice, got his 100% name ID because he was a, basically a television star, that the thing that ultimately undid him in a final way was a hot mic moment <laughs> on Access Hollywood. There's just something about that that's kind of like, I mean, you couldn't write it in a script and send it to a Hollywood studio without fearing you'd be, laugh you'd be laughed out of the room. That this would be the thing, you know, the, the, the ultimate like dagger in the heart would be, <laughs> again, a hot mic moment when, with Billy Bush when, you're, when you were about to tape a segment of Access Hollywood. It's just like, I, I, I can't believe, I, it's just, it's so perfect. And so, I, I, I think I say poetic, poetic in a way. Yeah, and a Bush family member, uh, just, to, just yes. to add an extra twist on it. Um, it, it well, albeit one of the lesser ones. Yes, I mean, the thing we saw this week, again, I mean, again, one of those things that, you know, the intersection of, for in a lot of ways, to go back to your experience, the idea that your first presidential campaign, as you said, you thought it would be ennobling, you thought it would be interesting, but, you know, you got in some ways the perfect campaign for someone who's interested in the intersection of politics and culture mm -hmm. because, you know, um, I mean, Trump is the intersection of politics and culture. Or at least he, he was, he made this, the, the, the intersection of politics and culture is what made Trump possible in some ways. He's been riding that tiger throughout. And then you have this week, the idea, you know, uh, of Melania Trump going on television and essentially saying, 
sounding like Marion Barry saying somehow about Billy Bush, you know, that the bitch set him up, right? I mean, that's, that's, that basically was, his, was, his, was you know, it's like Marion Barry gets caught smoking crack, co- crack cocaine on tape and says, you know, the bitch set him up, right? That's basically what Melania Trump was saying about Billy Bush this week. Yeah. Know? And, and, and <laughs> like there's this giant conspiracy in the world of Hollywood and Bushland somehow to set her husband up to get him to say repulsive things uh, on a hot mic that would later come back to haunt him and destroy his presidential campaign. The lunacy of that claim is only exceeded by the sort of surreal beauty of it. It's like, really? Oh, my God. Of course this is where we are in this campaign now, given everything that's happened and given the forces that pushed us here. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We talk about the reality TV aspect. But one thing I thought was really fascinating when um, uh, when the more and more of the Howard Stern tapes came up and like one of the defenses that was kind of briefly trotted out there and then kind of receded back from was, well, that's Donald Trump playing a character. Like that was like a character type thing. That's not what he actually believes. You know, it's it's. I guess this is really just a, a reality TV variant of the locker room talk. The idea that he's playing a character reminded me a little bit, frankly, of the Hulk Hogan Gawker trial when they said that, oh no, the Hulk Hogan character is different than Terry Bollea, which led to this absurdist passage where they were discussing whether Hulk Hogan's penis was different than Terry Bollea's penis. It was a very odd sort of discussion, and I do think that it is perhaps a natural. Uh, extension, so to speak, of the whole Trump campaign, that one of the things at the end was, well, the person that he was on the reality show, which of course is the reason that we're even in this spot in the first place, that's different than he is now. And I wonder if I'm, and if we can make it a more kind of a conventional narrative uh, type thing. I'm curious, as someone has covered these these so, so long, I, I, I'm curious if you think I find myself looking at this, and ultimately, I remember when I was talking to, to my editor, John Homans, uh, the day that Trump made the McCain comments, and we had like three or four fun Trump stories. He's like, oh, I guess we can't use those now, <laughs> because it was obviously going to be over. And but and so one of the things we kept learning is, oh, so the rules are a little bit different for Trump, and, the, and this turns out to, that you can do this and you can't do this. I'm curious, at the end, as everything is falling apart, do you think that ultimately he really did change those rules or do you think he took advantage of a weak kind of confused Republican party and some weak candidates and ultimately hit the, hit the ceiling that he was always going to hit anyway? Is this a, is this a support? Is this a support of the rules as we know it more than we, than we, than we've, than we're getting like ultimately a guy like this can't become president. Well, I think it, I look, I think it's, there's not a simple answer to that question. I mean, I think there's no question that, um, I mean, if you, if you ask the question, you know, can someone with uh, Trump's views and the particular kinds of uh, the appeal that he was making, you know, can you become president if you are um, uh, running a campaign that's explicitly kind of uh, not just populist, but also nativist and xenophobic and in some respects racist? Is that a, a campaign that in 21st century America is likely to be able to fix the problems that Republicans have uh, in terms of the demographic reality of America today, um, the answer to that question is no. I mean, I, I think you know the Republican Party was right when it looked when it looked at the end of 2012, uh, the RNC that is. Ryan Priebus did you know their postmortem and said you know the, for the Republican Party to be competitive at the presidential level, it needs to change in a variety of ways that are more in tune and in keeping with what our country now looks like and now believes, and some of the values that are more important now than they've ever been. Uh, values like uh, tolerance and and, and a respect for diversity and all that kind of stuff. I think that those are huge, there were gonna be huge problems for any candidate if they were, if they got somehow nominated on the basis of the kinds of 
uh, policy positions and, and political appeal that Donald Trump did. On the other hand, I mean, I do think that, and I do think it's the case that the Republican Party, though, very strong party uh, out in the states, you know, uh, controls the majority of governorships and the majority of state legislatures, and obviously has right now at least control of both the House and Senate and Congress. At the at, the, at, at another level, at the presidential level, the party is deeply riven. You know, and there's profound schisms. We'll talk with David Axelrod about this a little bit too uh, when we get to him. But I, part of the of the ability of a non-Republican, basically, which is what Trump was, um, to come in and stage a hostile takeover of the party, um, speaks to the weakness of the party. So all of that is all true. Uh, the way in which I think that it changed the rules is that the very fact that someone on the basis of of 100% name ID and a collection of, of, uh, of attributes that a large, many, many millions, tens of millions of Americans find appealing, just those attributes, like the sense that, he, that Trump embodied success and the sense that he was not politically correct and the sense that he didn't abide by the norms of uh, traditional politics and that he didn't seem uh, focus grouped and poll tested and market research down to uh, down to uh, uh, down to in every granular way that a candidate presents himself. The fact that he seemed authentic and not afraid to thumb his nose at the establishment and all that stuff. I think that is the, the fact that he could do, he could do through all of that that he could stage a hostile takeover of one of America's two political parties. There is something there, and and I think we will see potentially more uh, celebrities, more non-traditional political actors, more people who are, who will look at the Trump example and say, well, there are parts of this that obviously don't work in a, if, if your goal is to win the presidency. But winning the nomination is pretty good, you know? I mean, pretty, it's, it's a real achievement, right? So can you imagine a, you know, I mean, the, 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 the mental exercise that Sasha Eisenberg, one of our other colleagues and I have been going through is, what happens if Kanye West runs for president, as he has threatened to do? You know, what, is that, what would happen if a very popular African-American uh, celebrity who was, you know, now I'm not sure Kanye West is the right person, but he's kind of in the right vicinity of the right kind of person, but like a huge black entertainment figure were to run in the Democratic primary, someone with no political resume whatsoever, someone who was pretty far on the left end of the political spectrum and who had a huge hold over a large chunk of the Democratic coalition, just hypothetically and who brought enormous amount of, ri of, 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 of material resources and fame to bear. Is that the kind of person who could create a huge amount of disruption in the Democratic Party in 2020? Again, I'm not predicting it exactly, right. but it seems to me that the lesson of Trump is that these parties, both of them, are sort of frail and hollow, and that in a world that's increasingly uh, obsessed with celebrity and where uh, politics has largely been privatized and the parties don't have the role in funding campaigns that they once did, that our system, our structures of government, our structures of politics are now um, vulnerable to elements of what made Trump possible and what Trump brandished. It seems to me that's one of the lessons of 2016 is that, you know, not Donald Trump, but another kind of Trump-like figure is not just possible but likely to emerge in the future, and perhaps likely not just one of them, but many of them are likely to emerge in the future and be big forces in our politics as we go forward. That seems to me one of the big lessons of 2016. There's a lot, people are gonna write PhD dissertations about what Donald Trump, what the lessons of Trump are. But I think, you know, I, I don't at all now 
uh, would not at all be surprised to see others. Again, Mark Cuban, a good example of someone who people talk about. Could Mark Cuban, billionaire, sports owner, uh, former technology, startup, uh, multimillionaire, uh, could Mark Cuban be a force at a presidential race if he ran? Could Howard Schultz from Starbucks? I mean, these are the kinds of people who I think if I were them looking at this race, I would look at Trump's success first and then failure. And I would say, if I learn the right lessons from this, there's, there's, there's ways in which this experience is instructive and that I could build off this and choose the right lessons and forget the wrong ones, and I could do pretty well. Yeah, I mean, imagine what Trump would have been, would have been able to pull off if he, well, I guess if he wasn't Donald Trump. Right, <laughs> like if he wasn't so reactive and wasn't so so uh, uh, kind of undisciplined, imagine what a disciplined Donald Trump could have done uh, in the in the last few months. And I think that uh, I think that that's a lesson of as well. But I want to make it clear, John, as we as we as we get ready to go to talk to David, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Axelrod. Uh, I really Mr. have had Axelrod. a. <laughs> let's just call him. Let's just call him Ax. And <laughs> I think he's going to be your bet noir, Will, because as I just said earlier in the podcast, um, you know, David is a big Cubs fan, mm. and you are not. Right. I would say it's fair to say not. I am not. Right? So I, not. I have a feeling we're going to have, we may have some hostility on the line when we get David here uh, well, talking with well, you about baseball. But yes, but, but carry on. What's your question? I just want to make clear. It's not so much a question. I just want to make clear. I have actually had a wonderful time working on this election. I've actually really enjoyed it. It's obviously been instructive. It's just been different than what I thought it was going to be. Well, yeah, and look, it's I like I said, like I said, I think it's 100% been in your wheelhouse. You've been doing mm -hmm. great work, and 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 you know, again, in some ways. Like I would never, uh, I mean, it's just that like that Chinese proverb, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, you're, where they something about being cursed to live in interesting times, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, you got you got an election I that did. is unlike any other election uh, that's ever happened in America to cover, and on on one level, that's kind of amazing, and particularly the kind of election that it is is kind of perfectly suited to your to your observational gifts and your analytical strengths. But on top of that, it's also like like kind of appalling you know? yes it's both, yes it's, it's both you, you you were you were both incredibly fortunate and incredibly unfortunate for this to be your introduction to covering national presidential politics yeah well well wait until wait until maybe maybe in 2020 everything will settle down and we'll get jeb bush and hillary clinton again and everyone will just relax and sleep through the election right think that'll happen well no, no i don't think that'll happen i don't think it's gonna happen either <laughs> Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think that it's there's just something kind of fabulous about the fact that um, that uh, that I, I know it's tough for you because this has not been an ennobling or inspiring experience. And the other thing that's happened has been the fact that your Cardinals are nowhere near the postseason. How are you feeling about watching the uh, the Dodgers and the Cubs fight it out, and the Indians and the Blue Jays fight it out, and no no red birds flying anywhere? There's a Blue Jay flying through. Major League Baseball, but no red bird. How do you feel about that? Well, be, being from Central Illinois, I was raised not only to love the St. Louis Cardinals, but to hate the Chicago Cubs. So I am a very big Dodgers fan for this two fortnight only. So I really just for the next five or six days, I don't care what happens in the World Series. To me, the rooting interest of cheering against the Cubs is enough to help with also the uh, counting the 11 championship rings. That also helps.
All right, uh, that's kind of obnoxious, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, a, but appropriate way for us to end this segment of the podcast. I'm in turn to David Axelrod, who will have his own views, I'm sure, yes. on the matter of the Cubs and the Cardinals. Uh, I am, as I said before, John Heilman, and you are? I am still Will Leach. I'm ready, I'm ready to talk to Mr. Axelrod. This will be fun. My fellow Illinoisan. All right, let's all take a big, deep breath and come back for part two right about now. We're back, Will. Um, we're back now with the second half of the Culture Caucus podcast. We're here. I'm sitting at the University of Chicago, as I think I've indicated previously. But I'm here with David Axelrod, who's sitting across the table from me. Will, say hello to David. Uh, hello, Mr. Axelrod. Thank you for coming hey. on the Culture Caucus podcast. Yeah, call me around. David, though. I was oh, say, Mr. <laughs> Axelrod. What the yeah. fuck is that, Will? Come I'm, on. I'm, listen, I'm a, down, I'm a downstate Illinois kid, and so you know we're raised a certain way to, uh, to, to refer to people in an in, in honorary fashion. Okay, well, you've done that now. Let's just <laughs> so stop. That, so. Got it. <laughs> so, so this, so David, I think you may know, and but I'll I'll tell you again if you don't. This podcast is called the Culture Caucus, and what Will and I generally do is Makes we talk. Makes me uncomfortable that I would be on anything that has to do with culture. Well, yeah, that we we do I've define been culture. Accused of that, we define culture very broadly. I say good. Um, uh, normally, we talk about the intersection of politics and culture, and and whether that's culture is like business or media or. Uh, the arts or music or movies or Saturday Night Live or whatever. But we're getting close to election day. Yes. And so we thought like in this moment, we would actually talk to, we would dispense with our cultural perambulations and focus really just on politics, but a little bit of media. But we and could me- talk about Saturday Night Live. That's part of politics. Yes, we could. And we could also talk a little bit about sports. And that's where I want to start just very briefly. So last night, you and I were both at this Cubs-Dodgers game yes. at Wrigley Field. You're a... a Chicago sports fan in general. Right. I grew up in New York, moved to Chicago to go to college, and once the Mets traded Tom Seaver to Cincinnati in 1977, I completely transferred my loyalties to the Chicago teams. Right, and so you are, but you have a, I've been to a White Sox game with you. Yeah. Are no, you more I don't have Sox? the tribal loyalties. Like, when I grew up in New York, I, I, I was raised to hate the Yankees, who my father called the portrait of corporate privilege, and uh, <laughs> I was a Mets fan. But once I came to Chicago, I didn't have that tribal thing. And I love baseball. I love living in a city. I've always lived in a city with two teams. I like the idea that any day I could go to a baseball game. And uh, I'm fond of both teams. I I tend more to the National League just because I grew up a National League fan. But and of course, the Cubs are an irresistible story now. Right. So talk just talk about um, about what this series I mean the Cubs have made the playoffs the last few years it's not yes. like this is like some mirac- a miraculous thing but for no. some reason it feels different this year that there's more well, expectation well this has been uh, I wrote a piece for the New Yorker about this a few weeks ago uh, I mean the process by which the Cubs have reached this point is an extraordinary story because uh, Tom Ricketts and the Ricketts family bought the Cubs Ricketts of political fame and uh, they engaged in a very systematic kind of tear down and rebuilding of this team. They brought in Theo Epstein, uh, who really rebuilt the whole thing. And then they brought in Joe Madden, excuse me, to manage the team. And the uh, and so to watch, it was just a brilliant, the whole thing was brilliantly executed, including the fact that when they were losing 101 games and when they stunk, they were drafting these great players, and they actually acclimated Chicagoans to not even read the Cubs box stores, scores, but look at what was happening in South Bend or the, 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 in, in Tennessee or uh, in Iowa. And 
to get excited about the future. Well, the future is now. And, uh, you know, this, this is a city, everybody, every Cubs fan is snake bitten and worried that something will go wrong because the, something has gone wrong for 108 seasons. But there is this sense that if it's, that something's going to happen here, that this, this could be the year. And I will tell you, even if they don't make it this year, there is a sense that something has been built that will, I know Will's a St. Louis Cardinals fan. They have built something that is going to be good every year. They have a great organization, a great approach. The Cubs have that now. So, uh, you know, there's a new, new sense here that all of a sudden the lovable losers are, peren- are going to be perennial winners. I, I'm curious about that, too, because part of that, too, is you have to be able to successfully do successful messaging. You know, yes. I mean, certainly you've seen other totally. franchises like the Philadelphia 76ers would be a good example of this. They did something very similar to what the Cubs did where they tried, they broke it down and they had some losing season. They were like, listen, trust us, the pro- trust the process. It's going to work. It's going to work. And eventually the fans just said, we're tired of waiting. We're not going to wait. Because the process didn't work. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I, I mean, mean it, it, that, the fact it, is they've stockpiled themselves with young players who've gotten right. hurt, who've been less right, than they right. thought. So they didn't execute uh, very well, but the yeah, look in sports. A, a, a smart guy once told me in sports, you're either marketing wins or you're marketing hope. <laughs> and the Cubs wisely marketed hope until they could market wins. And uh, they they you know when they hired Theo Epstein, that was a signal to the Chicago. Here's the guy who worked the miracle in Boston. Now he's coming to do the same thing in Chicago. Theo's first message to Chicagoans was, this is going to take some time. We're going to have to go through some bad seasons, uh, but we're going to uh, we're going to build something here. And then they pointed everybody's attention to the building blocks. Uh, and it was an incredibly well-conceived marketing strategy. I'm, I'm curious about this thing. You know, so like there are two things, I, there are two ways in which this moment kind of marries up to politics for me. One is that obviously for all of us who are baseball fans, you know, October every year is amazing. Um, But every four years, October is a little different because we're all fixated on two parallel things that are happening, right? There's the baseball playoffs are happening and then there's the presidential election that's happening. Obviously one of them a greater consequence than the other, although some baseball fans might dispute that. How does it feel like this is four years ago, you were fully engaged in a presidential campaign, working on one, trying to reelect your guy while baseball was like kind of, I'm sure like a passing thing. You kind of noticed that there was a world series happening, but it was just flying by. How's it feel for you now to be, you know, watching the presidential election fly by and obviously very interested in that, but also kind of more reconnected to your normal passions as a normal person outside the political process. Well, let me just say parenthetically that both Chicago teams sucked back in four years ago, so there was no conflict yeah. uh, there. But look, I grew up, my father was an immigrant. He came to New York uh, when he was 12. I think he learned to play baseball before he learned English, and he became an all-city pitcher and went to college on a baseball scholarship. And we were at the ballpark every weekend. So baseball is like deeply ingrained in me. And to be, yes, to be able to, uh, to, to attend playoff games during the presidential race uh, and to, to have something else to focus on. I did call this uh, in my New Yorker piece, the headline was the most pleasing campaign of 2016. <laughs> so it's also a nice diversion from... Uh, what has been a kind of wrenching presidential campaign and continues to be uh, a really kind of troubling race. Yeah, I mean, I, 2008, uh, you had the Phillies and the Rays that yeah. were in the in the World Series. That's when my man Joe Madden took the Rays to the World Series. But uh, 
but I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to baseball then. Right, right. So. And then you had, uh, you had, of course, in 2012, you had uh, the San Francisco Giants um, happily uh, winning that World Series um, uh, over the Tigers. I was very pleased with that. Um, but trying to pay attention while doing this was hard. Uh, the thing that I noticed last night being at the game, um, the Cubs had won the first game. Last night, tight game. Clayton Kershaw uh, throwing seven innings of a shutout ball. And then... Uh, yes. Losing one nothing game, walking out of the of the of the of Wrigley with uh, folks, you could just sense like the nervousness, you know, which yeah, is a well, familiar they're, they're, thing. That's habitual, you know. Yeah. I mean, you 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 have enough bad breaks, bad things right. happen that you kind of think anytime something goes wrong, you know, old long standing Cub fans say, "Well, here it goes." Now, right. losing to the one of the greatest pitchers of all yeah, time yeah. to me is, you know, that that shit but, happens. But here's know? the but here's the parallel I wanted to draw, which is. I find like the the, you, the I think Cubs fans are very confident this year yes. that the Cubs are the best team in baseball. Yeah, and yet uh, you lose one. They one are the best game. team in baseball. They may not. That doesn't mean they're going to win the championship. But you lose one one to nothing game, and suddenly the nerves start mm-hmm. to, to uh, sphincters tighten. Right, sphincters. Yes. yes. I'm glad you said it that way. I feel like they're the same as Democrats right now, where it's <laughs> like everyone looks at the polls and says. Hillary Clinton, she's going to win. She's got, you know, she's got a durable lead. She's pulling ahead. She's, she's all fine. But somewhere deep down, the sphincter is tightened, you know, around yeah. every moment that Trump does something, there's kind of like a, is there some way we could lose this? Yeah. Don't you feel Well, first that? of all, Democrats are a little bit like Cubs fans, <laughs> even though we win. Uh, you know, I, I remember George Mitchell's uh, comment once that the only people who believe Republican talking points are Democratic senators, you know, because the Republicans would put out these attacks and, and immediately everybody get in the fetal position and assume that they were scoring with those attacks and so on. So I think also the, the Trump has become such a, a, a frightening figure to, to Democrats that the notion of losing to him uh, seems more than the typical election. And then finally there's a recognition that Hillary, uh, for all her strengths, is is a kind of freighted candidate. She, her, uh, her unfavorables are quite high. She has vulnerabilities. So um, in certain ways, she's defying gravity uh, by doing what she's doing. And so all of that has combined to give uh, some sense of anxiety. And frankly, I think it's good for there to be anxiety out there from a Democratic perspective, because um, when you have a candidate whose negatives are high and people are voting uh, with reservation, I think the last message you want to tell uh, send to people is that their vote doesn't matter and give them an, uh, an off ramp so that they don't they don't vote or they cast a vote for a third party candidate as a kind of idle protest. Right. I'm going to ask you one last question. And I'm going to hand you over to Will in, in a minute, but I want to as we kind of be, push ourselves. I want to say something else about baseball too, but go ahead. Oh no, no, say the thing about baseball. No, no, because it, it is a it is a link to politics. In this piece uh, for the New Yorker, I talked about. You're really proud that you wrote that I piece am, in New York, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. Well, I am. You can tell I you mean, you, I, met, you I, dropped a plug for it now at least four times in this well, podcast. Well, that's how you get people to read the yeah, damn I thing. I understand. But I'll have a whole list of things to plug by the end of this. So, sure. but the. Uh, Look forward the, to that. the thing that uh, struck me hanging around the Cubs was there was a feeling at the I was there I went to their spring training camp and I felt very much like it felt like the Obama 2008 campaign in the sense that they had, they are very coherent they put together a team that's designed to be coherent to work well together they have they all have this sense of shared goal and they're very much about innovation and using data and all kinds of other 
tools, neurotesting and so on, uh, to try and get an edge. And that was so, so I felt very much at home in that environment. And I think it's paying off for them in the same way that it paid off uh, for us. Now, on to your question. My question is this. There are a lot of ways in which this campaign, like we're, it's become a cliche to say this campaign has been crazy and unprecedented. And, you know, much of it has to do with Trump, although not all of it, given the nature of the WikiLeaks hacks. These are all things we've never seen before. Right. Like as a longtime astute observer of, of politics, presidential and otherwise, like what has just stood out for you where you have really been like jaw on the floor, like I can't fucking believe this is going on in this race? Well, I mean, the Trump thing from start to finish, I mean, starting with his opening salvo when he came down the escalator and gave that speech, that seemed... Uh, in certain ways disqualifying to me and what it spoke to to me and what his whole the whole Trump experience speaks to is that how big the gulf is between the two Americas that uh, the one in which I live and you live and the one where uh, there are a, a bunch of folks who feel disadvantaged by the economy they're they're fearful of the cultural and demographic changes and uh, he understood that, and that was his audience. Maybe that was his apprentice audience, but he's a master marketer. He understood that. He understood which buttons to push. And so I think in certain ways, you know, we talk about inequality and polarization in our society. Our, our, uh, the, the fact that I and others were slow to pick up on the power of Trump's candidacy uh, speaks to this great gulf in our country, in our politics, that um, and our e uh, economy, uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching after this election about how it was covered um, and why so many missed what was right there for us to see. Will take it away. Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of people, as difficult as this race has been and so sort of surprising, really the last week and a half, and really what I think has been really tough and i think there's a lot of concerns not just leading up to the debate after the debate of how ugly uh this could potentially get down the stretch uh, tim miller uh, who is communications director yeah. for jeb bush uh wrote a piece for the ringer today as a matter of fact talking about kind of like the political death march and how when you are involved in a, a campaign that appears to clearly be losing how difficult it is to every day to get up and go out there and try to get your message across and try to fight for your candidate he calls it one of the great tests of character that he's seen up close and makes an argument i find it a convincing one that a large part of really what all of this is happening is trump having difficulty accepting that this election is not going the way that everything has gone for him i guess up to this point do you having been a part of not very many losing campaigns but uh, certainly a, a camp a campaign that's gone through this in the past do you think there's something to that of what the morale's like down the stretch when someone's behind in the polls yeah, I mean, it's very, very difficult. I think of McCain in 2008 because there was a point after which it was very clear he wasn't going to win. And I always, you know, I think the finest moment of his campaign came in that period when he stood up in Minnesota. A woman challenged him, uh, not challenged him, but stood up and said uh, how frightened she was. Obama wasn't an American. He was a Muslim, he, not a citizen. And McCain uh, very calmly said, no, ma'am, he's, he's a fine person, good family, he's a citizen, we just, have, we just disagree on some things. I think that was his greatest moment. 
you, you contrast that with what we see from Trump, and it's pretty stark. Uh, because he is throwing logs on that fire every day. And the real question, and, and John and I have had this discussion, is whether Trump, who uh, defines the world in terms of winners and losers, and where, with losing being the cardinal sin, whether he can't emotionally accept the fact that he's losing, or whether he has some larger game here, which is to ra- further radicalize his base alienate his base by talking about a rigged election so that he can mobilize it for both commercial and political persons uh, purposes after the election. You you talked too about kind of the soul searching that we're going to everyone's going to have to have after this election. It does feel, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a debate about okay, is Trump a black swan event? Is this a one-time, like someone using a lot of celebrity that they have, the initial name recognition, in a, in a race where there are 17 candidates, therefore was able to get a small percentage of the electorate and be at the center of the stage of these debates and then kind of run from there? Or is if this is a hearkening to a larger thing, a lot of the things that he's doing now are people in the future, a lot of the mores that he's just kind of ignoring or a lot of the, the things that the, the agreements we've all sort of had in these elections, he just ignores and now is calling the whether or not the, the race is rigged or the, frankly legitimacy of democracy. Do you think like the things – obviously there's going to be some things that people will look at and be like, OK, that was an effective thing that Trump did. I should try more of that. Do you think you'll see more of that or do you think there will be more like, for example, when Marco Rubio kind of tried to do the Trump thing and clearly failed? Is there a space for someone who looks at this race and says, OK, I could, t- I could get, take advantage of the things that Trump did but not make all this these impetuous decisions and, and mistakes that he makes? Do you think there's a space for that or do you think Trump is kind of his own specific entity? Well, he certainly is his own specific entity, but – the, but he, but as I said earlier, his uh, he's merely exploiting what was there to be exploited. Uh, the fact is that there is a lot of alienation out there. I think the Republican Party has helped foment some of it by uh, suggesting in in succeeding elections that they would uh, re, you know reverse Obamacare and do you know and uh, roll back all of Obama's actions. And when that didn't happen, I think. Uh, that uh, that increased the the alienation, but I don't. You know, Trump is a singular personality. Will people try and capture that base in the future? I think absolutely. Uh, and you have to wonder about what Mike Pence's idea is here by sticking with Trump, defending Trump. Uh, does he have this vision of being able to marry his his base with the Trump base uh, and seize the nomination uh, in twenty? Uh, in 2020. Let me just say one thing about this all, though. The thing, the great, great deficit of this election is that there is something real going on out there relative to our economy. Uh, The fact is that uh, because of technology, because of globalization, there have been these rapid changes in our economy, and you've seen millions of people who are non-college educated who have lost good middle-class jobs and are now working for less. We've seen the flattening of wages over a long period of time. And um, we're not going to survive as a coherent society if 10 or 20 percent of Americans are moving forward at a rapid pace and everybody else is uh, treading water or falling behind. And it would behoove those people who are doing well to recognize that, that we really need to address these problems. And if we were having the campaign we should be having, uh, that would be the centerpiece of the discussion, not Access Hollywood or WikiLeaks. Yeah, I, you know, I keep trying to explain this to people who I 
talk to, um, whether it's in speeches or whatever, kind of just to say, you know, everybody here is fat and happy, you know, and y'all don't understand the depth of. Why are you looking at me when you say that fat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going to comment. Um, uh, you know, but people are, you know, really out of touch with the just the intensity of the frustration, yes. anger at 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 government, Republican, Democrat alike, at uh, the media, at Wall Street, at the Fortune 500, at basically every big established institution in the country. They look back on 25 or 30 years for a lot of them quite reasonably have been like, you know what? nothing's got better for me in the last 30 years. Right. For my kids, my grandkids, nothing's got better and a lot's got worse. And I've gone with establishment politicians and establishment solutions for 30 years and none of it's made any difference to my life. And so you're telling me that Donald Trump is going to be like horrible for me? It's been pretty horrible for me for 30 years. Right. You know, uh, there's things I don't agree with about things Trump says, but you know what? He's going to throw a stick of dynamite exactly. into, into a, a world exactly. that I think is not serving my interests, my family's interests, my friend's interests, my kids' interests. He's going to throw a stick of dynamite and blow it up. I'm kind of ready for that. Right. And, and, you know, and, and you know what? The answer to that is not some political tactic. Right. The answer to that is to genuinely and in a, in, in a substantive way ask the hard questions about what we need to do as a country to fulfill what is supposed to be our, our creed, which is that if in America, if you work hard, you can get ahead. And we, call, we used to call it the American dream. Nobody believes in that anymore. And, uh, you know, if we're going to live our values, then we have to have that discussion. And people who are doing well need to understand that they can't wall off the rest of America and enjoy uh, you know, uh, lasting prosperity and not have uh, this kind of political turmoil. Right. And in fact, not only not only not wall them off, but also do what they often do to them, which is condescend to yes. them, dismiss them, effectively call them deplorables, which brings us to the topic that I'd like to now address with you, which relates to Hillary Clinton. So this was in your basket of things to talk about? In my basket. <laughs> yeah. uh, whipping, it, whipping it out of the basket. I'm going to keep the, that Mexican thing in my basket, but I'm going to whip this out instead. Um, so Grateful for that. Y- you, I'm sure, are looking at, the like we all are, the revelations from the WikiLeaks um, phenomenon related to Podesta's email, yeah. to uh, the Democratic Party's mm-hmm. email, all that stuff. Some of it relates to things that you experienced personally mm-hmm. um, as, as uh, in the campaign in 2008, in the campaign in 2012. So what just what has struck you? What have you looked at when you've seen some of this stuff? What has struck you where you've said, man, I can't believe that they were doing that? Or I kind of thought they were doing that, but here's the evidence. Yeah, of I think doing the thing that. that's striking about it is how little is striking about it. I think that uh, everything that has been revealed or disclosed by those uh, emails pretty much comports with what I assumed. You know, first of all, let me just say in defense of the Clinton campaign, there isn't a campaign on earth that would not in some way be discomfited by the release of their emails because these are internal discussions. And, you know, internal discussions by definition are sometimes going to be uncomfortable when you read them in public. So I have some sympathy for them there. The basic thing, the portrait it paints of Hillary Clinton is is of a politician, of someone who is very much concerned about the political implications of the stuff that she does, who's tactical in nature and who's got a campaign that is, uh, you know, often mired in long uh, discussion about small things, uh, you know. And um, I mean, these are not 
you know, the fact, I don't think there was a person on the planet who didn't understand why she didn't want to release those speeches. Right. Uh, you know, and I don't think there's anything in there that was shocking. Right. But uh, but they were you know they were they're discomforting uh, for her from the standpoint of uh, her messaging. But right. I, I just don't think that they have been terribly uh, surprising. I'm going to take this opportunity to get you on the record on two matters of controversy, and they are actually separate matters of controversy about which I know a fair amount. But I'm interested to talk to hear what you have to say about them. So, That's like a threat. Like, I know what the real answer is. No, no, I'm is, saying so you I'm, better I'm give saying, me the right no, one. No, no, no. This is not a right or wrong answer thing. Yeah. This is, a, I feel like I'm familiar with both the public debate on these matters now and on some of the history, having done a book about this. Yes. There, the things are things Donald Trump has said of late. And they're, again, two issues that get conjoined, but wrongly, in my view, although they have some relationship to each other. The first is Hillary Clinton's campaign's role in spreading the birther rumor. Why? And the second, Hillary Clinton's campaign and its effort to raise questions about Obama's Muslim, alleged Muslimness, right? These are separate things that sometimes people mush together. But my question to you is, and again, what I meant was, I think I have some idea about like the history here, but you may have a better idea being more intimately involved on the participant side. Is it, what's your, what's your assessment, knowing the history, having lived some of it, Hillary Clinton's campaign had a role in propagating the birther lie or not? No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. You know, I, I, I look back at the campaign of 2008 on both sides, and it looks like, a, a, you know, like a meeting of the League of Women Voters to me right. compared to what we see now. I, I think that there, were, there was, you know, yes, there was jousting. Sometimes it got, you know, there were issues raised, and I think to their detriment about Obama's right. uh, past drug use, which he had written about yeah. and stuff. And right. we, we saw stuff like that. But this... This the notion of Trump equating anything that he's doing with what they did or what we did right. back in 2008 is like nonsense. So I believe. So I, I again, my understanding of that history is that that's correct. That the Clinton campaign did not propagate the birther history. <laughs> the, the more complicated one, in my view, and something that I have spoken to in public and have been people, I've been dragged into this controversy in a variety of ways, is the question of whether the Clinton campaign had an active role, even at a low level, which I believe they did, in spreading around questions around whether Barack Obama was a Muslim or not. Yeah. That I think, again, I'm interested to hear your view about it, but I think it's the the, 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 the history is more murky there. Obviously, it's a different thing from right. saying he was born in Kenya. Yes. But it is a thing, right? And Well, I think that um, at the margins, at the margins, there may have been some of that. Uh, and I think, I'm not sure you can go back and ask. Uh, she was asked about it at, at some point, I think. Yeah. And said, "Well, I take him at his word. He's not a Muslim, as far as I know." Right? <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, that was there was that was there at the margins. But again, you know, when you uh, compare it to to Trump, the other thing that was uh, sort of uh, in conflict was um, the uh, introduction of Reverend Wright yeah. as an issue. Right. You can't like flay Obama because his his Christian pastor was outspoken and then, you know, make the other cases, well, you got to get on a horse and ride it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious about that, though. I, you know, I listened to the, uh, to the Keeping the 1600 podcast and yours, of course, as well. I was hearing uh, uh, Dan Pfeiffer and John I didn't even Favre. get to plug that one yet, but go ahead. <laughs> and uh, I was listening to Dan Pfeiffer and John Favreau talking specifically yeah. about 
the day that those that the Reverend Wright yes. tapes hit, and it was just a massive. It was it was a oh my gosh, is this the end of the campaign? What's happening? Yeah, like it, there was legitimate. Panic. I think shit show is the technical term. Yes. Okay. Day, sorry. Yeah. It's the, the show of shit. And yeah. but I'm curious. The, the idea of now, like considering all the different things that have landed on both sides, but mostly on the Trump side uh, of these, like, wow, this is the end of it. Like, this is the end of it. Yeah. it. It feels like I will never believe again that any sort of scandal is the end of anything. Is that simply? Well, a Will, I think thing? that's a first of all, I think there's less volatility uh, in the electorate than we commonly believe. I think there's been more stability in this race than the public polls have uh, reflected. And, you know, th yes, I think one of the things you learn in doing presidential campaigns is that every single day in the minds of the folks who cover it and the people who participate in it is election day. And every story is the decisive story. And the fact is there are hardly any decisive moments in a, in a campaign. And, uh, you know, you need to roll with those and not, and keep your wits about you, uh, because, uh, regardless of what the commentary is. And, you know, the other thing that, that, that is uh, pushing this is you've got this plethora of media outlets that are trying to get viewers, that are trying to get eyes that want. And so every, you know, there is an interest in making stories bigger than they are uh, in order to attract people to their, to their cable network, to their websites, to, so, uh, there's social media outlets, you know, so there's that there's a kind of physics to this. But if you're in a campaign, the important thing to remember is that um, there is generally no decisive event. Now, in the case of the Reverend Wright thing, that said, when things come that look like a hit to the main engine, uh, you need to act and you need to act quickly. Uh, uh, Senator Obama made a speech four days after that that thing hit in Philadelphia that was, I think, pivotal in his campaign, not so much because it quelled the debate, but because he, people, see, I think this whole thing is an audition to see how people react to pressure and react to difficult situations because people have an intuitive sense that's what the presidency is. He dealt with that moment uh, with, with wisdom and grace, and people said, well, that was interesting. Here's a young guy who stood up to something really, really fierce and did it in a really smart and graceful way, he just passed a presidential test. That's that was the importance of that event more than the the negativism of that story. Worrisomely, uh, that it almost sounds like uh, considering our co-host, you're arguing against the notion of a game change. Yeah, I I look. I think that you you are judged in the aggregate, and people begin to frame impressions of you and events either add or detract from that impression, especially late in the race. I mean, people's views of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are pretty well formulated here. I think what's plaguing Trump as much as anything is not his coarseness, although I think that's hurt him, but uh, a general sense that he is unprepared to be president of the United States. And that's been nagging at him throughout. And some of these events have added uh, added concern to that. So, uh, but I don't think it's any one thing uh, but a, a, a combination of things that help people paint that picture in their mind. I don't want to. I don't want to get too much into self-defense. Thanks for attacking me, Will. No, but no, I will, no. But I will say. But I will say. But I will say that I. I don't believe that David Axelrod sitting in front of me would not acknowledge that um, something as 
important for, say, as Barack Obama winning the Iowa caucuses. Oh, yeah. Or as the financial crisis in 2008. Yes. Uh, the collapse of Lehman John, Brothers. Yeah. I'm no, just those, were, those were important. No, events. you're not, Will. You're attacking me viciously. <laughs> but and you I'm see, trying those, to are, those, those are different things <laughs> than <laughs> the scan, you know, sort of like the scandal of the day thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those okay. were events, you know, those were real, genuine uh, events. I also think, by the way, that John. John McCain's selection of Sarah Palin was a significant event in terms of people framing or completing their their. But here, McCain was running on the America, I'll put my country first right. platform, and then pick Sarah Palin. I think that was destructive to his campaign in the long run. Well, and I'll say just to, even in the context, and I'm I'm really joking about being defensive about this, but even no, in the context, I can of, see your face. But even in the context, <laughs> you're going to have a tough conversation when he gets back to New yeah, York. But I'm even in the context, I'm scared. But even in the context of Reverend Wright, I believe I just heard David say, you know, this was a real time test of leadership and a real time test of the candidate's ability to react under pressure. Yes. And the people looked at that and said, right, that it didn't fundamentally alter the course of the race, but it was an important thing. Yes. Those, there's some moments that get elevated. it added to the picture. That, right. that people were framing of him. So let me just ask you these last couple questions before we go. Um, first question is, essentially right now, I believe that that this, the rational uh, conventional wisdom about where the race stands is that Clinton is leading. There's some debate about it by how much. I don't think anybody who's rational thinks she's going to win a gargantuan landslide. I mean, where she Except maybe in the Electoral College. Maybe, could. right? But she's not going to end up at, you know... I mean, anyway, who, who knows exactly how you define a landslide? Not going to be in four hundreds, the four hundreds of election. You think that's would, possible? Well, let I me. I do ask, not think it's possible. Well, that's what I mean. So, no. so, so, give me your sense of where where the race stands today, and whether anything, given your theory about how much yeah. these things are accretions building up, whether anything can fundamentally alter the basic electoral dynamics between now and election day. I think that she is ahead. I think that the thing to look at are the battleground states. I think that she has a um, a bigger lead in the battleground states in the aggregate than we ever did. And uh, time is running out. And uh, there, you know, we'll have a debate on Wednesday. I don't know when this uh, podcast will air, but uh, we're headed into a Wednesday debate. Yeah. And uh, that's the last big event uh, of the election that's going to kind of get a lot of eyeballs on it. And I just, you know, I do not see uh, the dynamic changing down the images of these candidates are so fundamentally embedded and on the fundamental issue of qualification ability to do the job and temperament her her edge is so so great and that's so important that i just don't see how trump makes up the ground right you raised something earlier that i want to come back to just because you it's to me intriguing and i think worth a little bit of discussion just before we go which is the question of the role of the media, you raised it earlier and said you think when this is all over, we're going to have to have a lot of hard conversations about a variety of yes. things, including the frustrations and anxieties of a lot of Americans, but also the role the press has played in um, in this process. I don't want to even yeah. I don't want to I don't want to actually tip the scales in terms of how I describe right. it. Do you think the press has failed in some substantial way? Do you think that the press has been uh, irresponsible, that it's been enabling, that it's what, what's your view about how the well, press I, has I done think on that, this? I think that as Donald Trump properly recognized that uh, he uh, that if you light yourself on fire that it's good TV and uh, so he got a lot of coverage early and just basically uh, uh, supplanted his opponents by dint of it I mean the fact is he spent less money 
than some of his much less money than some of his opponents and overwhelm them with earned media coverage that is more commensurate with a general election and that i think is a question that is going to have to be looked at the second one is uh, at what point should he have borne more scrutiny and did it, did that scrutiny come too late uh in the process um so uh you know i i i think uh a lot of the questions will swirl around him. But, you know, the other question is, if you, this question of what is the role of the press and how, I mean, the Trump people will argue that by covering some of these things about Trump, the press has been, has shown a bias. So how do you separate bias from the obligation to report on objective facts. I mean, this is like a, an age-old discussion, yeah. but I think it's come into sharper relief because of this election. Well, and sharp, super sharp relief because of what's actually going on right now, yeah. you know, and the nature of these stories. David Axelrod, um, I, I'm, I'm not going to get into a, I'm not going to put myself in a position of saying I'm rooting for the Cubs because if I say that, People will say, "Dude, you're a Red Sox fan. You're a Giants fan." Will will actually say everybody that. should be I rooting for the that. Cubs now. Will 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 mock me. I'm not rooting for the Cubs, but I think just for the purposes of people like you, and for the just the just for, as a pure black swan thing, like the Cubs in the World Series, like I want to see that just because like we're looking for the all the uh, the star-crossed, snake-bitten uh, people everywhere. Yeah, for all the underdogs yeah. who have been, had for all the people who've had sand kicked in their face at the beach. All of you should be rooting for the Cubs here. This is the great avenging event. When the Cubs win the World Series, it's like it'll mean so much to so many people. And I'll tell you, there's only one other reason in addition to that that I'm sort of rooting for it to happen because it would make Will Leach's life so fucking miserable because yeah. he hates the Cubs. He yeah. hates true. the Cubs. It, it's, it's worth noting this. We will cheer for all the underdogs with a $186 million payroll. Let's all keep that in mind. Oh, the underdog. Yeah. I'm sorry. Will I'm wants to keep better. Way, I'm we're, enjoy, we're enjoying some of your players now. <laughs> I know one of them's going to start game four for us, John <laughs> I Lackey. Know, so I know. thank you for that. All right, David Axelrod, you're great. Um, Will Leach, uh, what's the name of this show again, Will? I believe it's called The Culture Caucus. You can find this on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Also, of course, on BloombergPolitics.com. Will, I'll be back with you next week with, I'm sure, a less delightful um, and possibly more handsome guest than the one we have this week. (laughs) Bye-bye.